our text this morning as we hear from the living God in his word. On this second Sunday of Advent is 1 Samuel 26, verses 1 to 25. <clears throat> and we are, of course, continuing our study of 1 Samuel in this Advent season. If you've been with us at Christ the King over the last few weeks, you might have a sense of deja vu this morning. Because we've been here before, haven't we? Verse 1 of our chapter reads, Then the Ziphites came to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is not David hiding himself on the hill of Hakilah, which is on the east of Jeshimon? And you only have to have memories as good as chapter 23, three weeks ago, to hear the parallel. Because in chapter 23, verse 19, if you wish to look back and see it, we read, Then the Ziphites went up to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is not David hiding among us in the strongholds at Horish on the hill of Hakilah, which is south of Jeshimon? The Ziphites went to Saul at Gibeah with the news of David's whereabouts. And on that earlier occasion in chapter 23, Saul's response was immediate. Verse 23 of chapter 23, Saul says, Then I will go with you, and if he is in the land, I will search him out among all the thousands of Judah. And Saul did pursue David. Around the mountainside, remember, but David escaped narrowly saved by that astonishingly timed attack by the Philistines elsewhere in the land at the end of chapter 23. Still, that providential diversion wouldn't last forever. So in chapter 24 from two weeks ago, we read in verse 1, when Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men. Which has basically just been the story of the life of David for some time now in 1 Samuel, hasn't it? The situation hasn't changed much. Jeshimon is another one of these words that means wasteland or wilderness. And that's where David's been. It's where David still is in chapter 26. He's still a fugitive. He's still driven out of society. He's still living where no one would choose to live, in hiding, in the wilderness. And so the Ziphites sent word to Gibeah, 25 miles to the north, again. And the news came to Saul, again. Only this time, we might have wondered, at least for a moment, if things would be different. Because a lot has happened with King Saul since the last time the Ziphites brought this reconnaissance to them. David had spared Saul's life. Remember? Chapter 24 in En Gedi where Saul walked into the very cave where David and his men had been hiding in order to relieve himself. 
Listen to how David puts it in chapter 24, verse 10. Speaking to Saul after the fact, Behold, David says, This day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. And you remember how Saul was seriously shaken in that moment. He wept, the text says, and then he spoke, and listen again to his words, beginning in verse 17 of chapter 24. Saul said to David, you are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. If a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now, behold, I know that you shall surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand, David. All of which is to say that when the Ziphites bring their information to King Saul this second time in chapter 26, we don't know for sure what will happen. If Saul's words at En Gedi could be believed, then maybe the hostilities were over. But of course, they weren't over. The Ziphites delivered their news, and then verse 2, So Saul arose and went down to the wilderness of Ziph with 3,000 chosen men of Israel to seek David in the wilderness, just as he'd done when he went to En Gedi because nothing had changed. Saul had publicly acknowledged David's future kingdom when he saw David's righteousness, but his heart was as before. Saul had evidently learned nothing that had changed him in the period covered by the previous two chapters. And I review all of that, partly for those of you who haven't been with us the last few weeks, but also partly because I think it's important for understanding what happens now in chapter 26 in order to see that at the opening of chapter 26, this is Saul's test. Right at the start of the chapter. And we see right away in verse 2 that he fails it. But I think there's a hint in the text that David didn't know that yet for sure. That David had held out some hope that maybe Saul had turned a corner. He wasn't counting on it, to be sure. Chapter 24 ended, if you recall, with David returning to the stronghold. <laughs> He's still in the wilderness. He knows he can't fully trust Saul. But look at verses 3 and 4 of our chapter today to see this. It's just a little thing, but I think it matters. Verse 3 says, Saul encamped on the hill of Hakilah, which is beside the road on the east of Jeshimon. But, verse 3b says, David remained in the wilderness. David wasn't on the hill of Hakilah after all. Which means then that Saul's great advantage of 3,000 fully trained soldiers versus David's small group of 600 quasi-soldiers turns out to be a disadvantage because now Saul doesn't know where David is. 
and 3,000 men can't hide very easily. So we read on in verse 3. When he saw that Saul came after him then into the wilderness, David sent out spies and learned that Saul had indeed come. And I know it's just a little word, indeed, in verse 4. But I think it's important. David presumably suspected who it was in this massive camp, but that little word indeed seems to signal that there was at least the possibility in David's mind that maybe it wasn't Saul. Or at least he had to make certain it was. So he sent out spies, the text says, but if he had held out any hope that Saul's confession at En Gedi meant a real change had taken place, then that hope was gone now. David now knew that nothing had changed. So then verse 5 becomes the end of the setup to what happens in this chapter. If you look there at verse 5, it says, Then David rose and came to the place where Saul had encamped. And evidently he had some kind of vantage point from which he could view Saul's camp because then we read, David saw the place where Saul lay with Abner, the son of Ner, the commander of his army. Saul was lying within the encampment while the army was encamped around him, which means now that we're not in the same situation as chapter 24. Because in chapter 24, the meeting of Saul and David was coincidental, at least in human terms. David says the Lord had arranged it, but it was unplanned. David didn't know Saul was there until Saul walked into the cave where David was hiding. Now the tables have been turned. Which means that it's at this juncture, I think, that the key question the reader has to be asking moving through this narrative of 1 Samuel is, what will David do? The ball's in David's court in a way it has not been before. The Ziphites had betrayed him to Saul a second time. Saul had gone out to track David down just as before. David realizes his words to Saul in chapter 24 had had no enduring effect. Saul's heart is unchanged, and now David has a decision to make. So what does he do? You heard the chapter read. He goes to Ahimelech. David said, verse 6, David said to Ahimelech the Hittite, who's not mentioned anywhere else in the Bible, we don't know anything else about him, and to Joab's brother Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, who, parenthesis, parenthetically here, Zeruiah is one of David's sisters, according to 1 Chronicles 2, verse 16, which means that Abishai is David's nephew, which matters because we are going to hear much more about Abishai and his two brothers, Asahel and Joab, the three sons of Zeruiah in 2 Samuel. And already in this chapter, you'll get a little flavor for what these brothers were like in their pursuit. But David 
takes Abishai with him, who volunteers to go, and he goes down into Saul's camp at night, and Saul's sleeping along with everyone else, it turns out. And his spear's in the ground at his head, and Abner, the commander of his army, is there too, also sleeping. And then, verse 8, Abishai says to David, you knew it was coming, God has given your enemy into your hand this day, David. Which is precisely what David's men said to him in the cave in Engedi, right? From chapter 24, same phrasing. Only this time, Abishai says he's willing to do the deed. Now please let me pin him to the earth with one stroke of the spear, and I will not strike him twice, Abishai says. Which, of course, would have been fitting in a way, right, for Saul to be killed by the very spear he so often had used to try to kill David. The spear is mentioned six times in this chapter. It becomes a powerful symbol for what Saul's all about. On one level, you could imagine that this might have been tempting for David. He'd already spared Saul's life once, and to what end? David had learned Saul wasn't changing. Mercy had achieved nothing, in other words, it would seem. So here's your chance, David. You don't even have to be the one to do it. Abishai volunteers for the job. But <laughs> here's how I read this narrative now. Because I don't think David went into that camp with any intention of trying to kill Saul. The response that David gives in verse 9 to Abishai just sounds clear to me. He doesn't seem to struggle with this. But David said to Abishai, Do not destroy him, for who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? And you know why that's not really much of a temptation for David at this point, I think, is because of what David learned last week in chapter 25 with Nabal. Because there, you recall, David had been intending to kill Nabal. Nabal had offended him. David was dead set on killing him and all the men in his clan. And the Lord stops him by sending Abigail. You remember that from last week. But then at the end of the chapter, it was the Lord who struck Nabal later on. And do you remember what David said in verse 39 of chapter 25 from last week? 25 verse 39, he said, Blessed be the Lord who has avenged the insult I received at the hand of Nabal and has kept back his servant from wrongdoing. The Lord has returned the evil of Nabal on his own head. David learned that lesson. And when you look at verse 10 of our chapter today, you see it. David said, verse 10, As the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him. Just as the Lord had struck Nabal, chapter 25, same verb. Or, David says, his day will come to die. Or he will go down into battle and perish. Which, of course, is ultimately what happens. But I think, in other words, David's saying, I didn't come to kill Saul, Abishai. God forbid. David had learned to trust in God in this matter. And even though he didn't know how the Lord would deal with Saul, he believed God would do it. He believed God's promises would come to pass in God's time and in God's way. 
So I think David knew from the beginning that he wasn't planning anything like that. The temptation that comes through Abishai, and we're later on, we're not too surprised that Abishai does this, given the character we meet later. The temptation that comes through him just doesn't stick. It doesn't land. David's up to something else. So he takes Saul's spear and his water jug, and he goes away, and then we read in verse 12b that no man saw it or knew it, nor did any awake, for they were all asleep. And it's not just your average sleep. They're not just tired. Because the text says, a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen upon them. I don't know whether David knew that or not. The narrator tells us. But deep sleep from the Lord is serious. You only encounter that a handful of times in the Old Testament. For example, of Adam in Genesis 2, when the Lord puts Adam into a deep sleep in order to continue his creation, and he creates Eve in that narrative. Or, for example, of Abram in Genesis 15, when the Lord puts him into a deep sleep and then gives him the great promise in Genesis 15. And there's a couple other places. For example, in the book of Job, chapter 4 and chapter 33, it's used of a type of deep sleep where Yahweh is claimed to reveal himself. Meaning, what's the point? That David's able to achieve his purposes in Saul's camp because Yahweh sends this sleep is the point. All of which then brings us to what I think is the big question of this chapter that I've been trying to figure out all week. And the question is, what was David's purposes? What was David's purpose here? I mean, why do what David did? Yes, it was a big deal that he could have killed Saul and didn't. That does become part of the point in verse 23, for example, of our chapter when David says, The Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. For the Lord gave you into my hand today, and I would not put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. That's significant. But I suggest after chapters 24 and 25, we're not all that surprised by it, are we? It would be, if that was it, then that would be to make the same point as is made in chapter 24. But David had been prepared for this. It doesn't seem David struggled to make this decision in this chapter. I don't think that's the only idea here. Neither do I think David does what he does just because he's trying to frighten or to intimidate Saul somehow because he wants Saul to not pursue him any longer. I don't think that's it. David knows who has the advantage here. He says at the end of verse 20, the king of Israel came out to seek a single flea. I mean, humanly speaking, David's an insignificant threat to Saul. And he knows that Saul knows that. Of course, the Lord's been intervening all along. So, so then why do this, David? I do have a suggestion for you. I can't prove it. In fact, it's not even a very easy point to try to make. But I will try to make it anyway because I've come down here into what I think is going on as I read the narrative. 
I'd like to suggest that what David does in this chapter is not to prove something about himself fundamentally, but rather what he does is an action that is intended to potentially benefit Saul and Saul's followers. Because while David's actions do demonstrate that his righteousness is there, and he knows that, that's not news to Saul. That's precisely what the main point was in chapter 24, when in a totally unexpected way, David encounters Saul in the cave and opts not to harm him. This time, David sets up the encounter, you see. There's a fundamental difference there. So I don't think David's out to prove something about himself that he's already proven. Rather, here's what I think. You just, you just have to think about it and decide if you think I'm right. I think David acts to try one last time to call Saul and his followers to repent. To make a choice. To see the seriousness of what they're doing. To change course before it's too late. I think this is the coming king calling for repentance one more time. And there's two instances of dialogue in the rest of chapter 26 where I'll try to explain this suggestion to you. First is with Abner and his troops in verses 13 to 16. And then secondly is with Saul, of course, in verses 17 to 25, the end of the chapter. Abner. Remember him? He didn't show up in chapter 24. He's Saul's commander. He's been Saul's commander from the start. So you go all the way back to 1 Samuel 14, verse 50, and it says he was in that role when Saul became king. He was there the day, Saul, he was there the day David killed Goliath. We learn in chapter 20 and verse 25 that Abner was the one who habitually sat at table at official meals and functions right next to Saul. He's Saul's right-hand man. In other words, he's aware of, he's involved in everything Saul's doing and has been doing all along. And I think David's essentially warning him. I think David's forcing him to make a choice. And it, I'd, I'll admit that it may be that this is too subtle. But start at verse 14 with me in the text. And David called to the army. Note that it's not just Abner, it's the army. The Israelite army, David's future army. Okay, He called to the army and to Abner, son of Ner, saying, Will you not answer, Abner? And David's across this wide chasm now, right? What's he doing? Then Abner answered, Who are you who calls to the king? Only I don't think David's calling for the king at this point. Maybe David was more interested in speaking first to the soldiers, at least. So verse 15, And David said to Abner, Are you not the man? I prefer the man. The ESV says a man, but I think David's being specific here. David said to Abner, Are you not the man who is like you in Israel? Why then have you not kept watch over your Lord, the king? 
for one of the people came in to destroy the king, your Lord. Notice David doesn't say at that point that he came in. He wasn't planning to destroy the king. Abishai evidently wanted to. Maybe David means him. Anyway, David continues, Abner, this thing that you have done, it's not good. As the Lord lives, you deserve to die, Abner, because you've not kept watch over your Lord, the Lord's anointed. Now, see where the king's spear is and the jar of water that was at his head. And if you're like me, you spend a long time trying to figure out what's David's point here, really? What's he trying to say to Abner? Is he really trying to condemn Abner and his men here? Is that all? Or could it be that David's purpose is something else? Because what David says is true. It is. Saul was the anointed king of Israel. Abner's job was to guard him. But could it be that maybe David's message to Abner and his men is partly embedded in the fact that it's David speaking to them? Because Abner and his men would know David well, right? They would have known David from their association with him during the time that he'd been at Saul's court and had served with distinction in Saul's army. If you can cast your memory back far enough to chapter 18, it says in verse 5 of chapter 18, David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul set David over the men of war. In other words, David's been in charge of this army in the past. And then it says in chapter 18 of David's having been set in that position, this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. Abner, listen. You haven't kept watch over your Lord? Are you really loyal to him, Abner? You're the renowned commander of the army of Israel. Who is like you? Why then? Note that language in verse 15 of our chapter. Why then have you not kept watch over your Lord the King? You see, the whole point there is that it's not because Abner was just somehow tired or lazy or didn't know what he was doing. That wouldn't be true of Abner. No one's like Abner. David knows it's because of something else. Could it be? I can't prove this. Could it be that it's because Abner and his men weren't really, at some level, loyal towards Saul? Evidently, they hadn't set up watches during the night. Why? Perhaps because they were convinced David wouldn't attack Saul. Yet, in the meantime, here they are, still giving their allegiance to Saul, and they're still supporting Saul, at least in appearance, in Saul's campaign against David. In other words, I'm suggesting that maybe the intent of David's rebuke of Abner is to confront Abner and his men with an important choice they need to make. Either you stay with Saul 
and you take his agenda seriously, which they hadn't, evidently, because they were not seeing David as the serious threat to Saul's kingdom or they wouldn't have left Saul unguarded. Or you abandon Saul altogether. What if David wanted them to see that they could not remain in the middle in the struggle between Saul and himself? Himself, the anointed future king, the one currently in the wilderness, the one currently outcast, the one currently suffering. What if they need to be challenged to identify with David. David wants Abner and his men to think seriously about what they're doing and then perhaps to ask themselves if they should really be aligned with Saul or not. Ever since that day Samuel had come to Bethlehem, David had been the Lord's anointed one. We know that. Do you think Abner and his men knew it? Since chapter 13, Saul had been the Lord's rejected one. You think Abner and his men knew it? Now's the time for decision. The true anointed one is asking you, whose are you really? Dear friends, I don't know if that's right or not for sure. But if it is, the question is the same for us today. Whose are you really? You need to make a choice between whatever it is that you are sort of associating with, even though you kind of know that you should be with the anointed one. Is the coming king saying this to you? Revelation 3 verse 20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door... I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Is it a stretch? <laughs> I think there's something similar happening in the question that David then poses for Saul in verses 17 to 25 here at the end of the chapter. Remember, David seems to be at least slightly hopeful that Saul had changed. Found out he didn't. What's the last move on David's part? Well, the focus here is on Saul in a way that it wasn't. Back in chapter 24, verse 18, David said, Why does my Lord pursue after his servant? What have I done? What evil's on my hands? Now therefore let my Lord the king hear the words of his servant. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. If it is the Lord who stirred you up against me, may he accept an offering. But if it is men, may they be cursed before the Lord. For they have driven me, David, out this day, that I should have no share in the heritage of the Lord, saying, go serve other gods. That's a condemnation of what's been happening to David. Look at, I think David does speak quite diplomatically here. 
intentionally in order to land the point as well as he can with Saul. David knows what Saul had said back in chapter 24. Let me read this piece of it again. Saul said, So may the Lord reward you with good for what you've done to me this day, David. You are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. The Lord hadn't stirred Saul up against David, and David knew it. Saul's actions were his own. Not motivated even by other men, but David puts the matter diplomatically, while in fact Saul would see that he's placing the curse on him. It was because of Saul that David would be driven from the land of Israel, driven from the Lord's land, the Lord's people, in effect being driven from the presence of the Lord, he says in verse 20 of our text. Now therefore, David says, let not my blood fall to the earth away from the presence of the Lord. For the king of Israel has come out to seek a single flea like one who hunts a partridge in the mountains. The role of the king of Israel was to protect God's people in the land God gave them. Saul's doing just the opposite, David says. And look at, this is the last appearance of Saul in the first Samuel narratives before the account of the events that surround his death. So you know how I read this chapter? I read this as David's final appeal to Saul. To repent. Can you not see, Saul, the evil of what you're doing? The coming king calls for repentance. What a gracious last act of David this is with Saul. What was Saul's reaction? Well, here again, it's a bit hard to judge it, isn't it? Because Saul's words give the appearance of remorse, but if you read carefully, you see they fall short. I have sinned, Saul said. I have acted foolishly and have made a great mistake. Yep. All true statements, to be sure. But what's missing? Well, in chapter 24, Saul had explicitly acknowledged that it was David who would be king, that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. So why then, in the middle of verse 21, do we read this? Return, my son David, for I will no more do you harm. David, to return to the court of Saul? No, that's not where genuine repentance on the part of Saul would have come out here, do you see? As one commentator puts it, Saul's words seem to be words arising more from the sphere of the admission of mistakes and sorrow for them than from the sphere of a true sense of guilt and repentance. And the proof for me that that's the right read of this section is that David ignores Saul's invitation. In fact, his response is devastating. Here's your spear, O king. 
Saul can save his breath and his promises. David won't return to Saul. David will remain with Yahweh. Saul may have seen that his life was precious in David's eyes that day, but David knew the reverse wasn't true. Verse 24, Behold, as your life was precious this day in my sight, so may my life be precious in the sight of the Lord. And may he deliver me out of all tribulation. Then Saul said to David, verse 25, Blessed be you, my son David. You will do many things and will succeed in them. The banality of which is crisply confirmed with the last words of our chapter. So David went his way and Saul returned to his place. And brothers and sisters, they would never see each other again. Saul's last chance to repent, orchestrated intentionally by David, is over. Now, brothers and sisters, this is a challenging chapter to interpret. But let me leave you with this. That if I'm even partly right here, then the choice that confronted both Saul and Abner in chapter 26 is the choice that confronts us. Is it not? It's what Moses said in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 9. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse, therefore choose life that you and your offspring may live. David was the anointed one in the days of 1 Samuel. He was the future king. What's our response to Jesus, our future king? There's only two ways. You may either bow in humble acceptance of the authority of God's anointed one over your life or else choose to go your own way. That seems to me to be what David's saying to Abner and Saul. And just as David acted for the benefit of Saul and Abner that day, so also does the Lord act for us. For as 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 9 and 10 say, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. <coughs> repentance. Why? For the day of the Lord, which is Jesus' day now, right? For the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. This Advent... Let me urge you to follow the coming King who is righteous and faithful. The Lord's anointed, great David's greater Son. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.